This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. This week we'll feature Strokestown Poetry Festival. Our Toaster Challenge guest is Alice Lyons, whose novel Una has just been published by Lilliput Press. And the poet today that we'll be featuring is Francie Ponge. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. Well, it's been a hard time for literary and poetry festivals, what with uh, things having to close due to COVID-19. And one of our favourite festivals, the Strokestown International Poetry Festival, had sadly to be cancelled this year. It usually happens in the May Bank Holiday weekend. I always have it in my calendar as one of my favourite places to go to to Roscommon for that weekend. It's uh, been on the go for 21 years, which really is fantastic. It was initially started by Merrily Harper and it's now under the directorship of Melissa Newman and a fantastic committee down there. They work really hard to have a vibrant festival. What I love about it is that it encompasses emerging poets. There's a place for just poetry enthusiasts as well. And you always get to meet uh, poets from all over the world because by the very nature of the competition of the festival, uh, it's kind of centred around an international poetry prize. And one of the stipulations of being shortlisted is that you actually have to come to Strokestown in Roscommon. So people come from all over the world. And um, Peter and I have been visiting and attending the Strokestown Poetry Festival for many years. Isn't that right, Peter? That's right. I mean, it, I, I was the director of it for a few years as well in the past. But I, it's, oh, it's I forgot part, about that, actually. <laughs> it's in a part of the world that I, that's, that's, I think, close to both our hearts. So it's a, it's a nice part of the world. And it's a nice festival because it has that thing that a lot of festivals get very big quite quickly and they become sort of a little bit generic. And sometimes you wonder, it might, you know, you might be in Bradford or Leeds or Dublin. That doesn't make a huge amount of difference. But this is this has remained kind of distinctive because it's small scale. And as you say, people come from all over. What I also like is that it mixes Irish and English. For instance, you, you, you'll go to a reading in the house and the house itself is very atmospheric. And so you you're mean sitting, the Strokestown house? Don't Strokestown house. Just Strokestown house. You're sitting there looking out at sheep munching the grass and listening to poets read in English and Irish. And I always, so I, I always like that kind of mix. And just the fact that it's, it's poetry only that is, is, is nice as well. Most festivals now tend to be fiction or fiction is the main thing with poetry sort of shunted off to the side. But poetry is very much front and centre at Strokestown. So that makes it nice too. Yeah. And also Strokestown itself, I mean, it's supposed to be based, I don't know if this is true or not, on um, the Ringstrasse in Vienna. I think the owner of Strokestown House went to Vienna and he came back and decided that this is what he wanted to create down there. Is that right? Yeah, not that you think you were in Vienna, I suppose, but I think, <laughs> but yeah, it, I think, is it the Pakenhams? Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, I think that's uh, correct. But, yeah. but, but you but, see, um, that's what actually adds to the beauty of the festival. I think there's kind of a shabby elegance to it when you're in the library in Strokestone House and you're listening to poetry. And by the way, the attendance to the readings is really excellent as well. I mean, um, I've been down there in various capacities. I've judged the Children's Prize, the School's Poetry Prize, and it usually happens on the Friday of the beginning of the festival or the Thursday night. I can't remember which, but either way, the start of the festival and the excitement in the library when the children come in to uh, hear how they, how they won and then to read out their poems. And I remember one year it was a little girl's birthday on the day that I announced uh, that she had won one of the prizes and it was really exciting. So it's great the way they mix young and emerging and, you know, obviously established writers, 
Yeah, we've the locals get the locals get involved as well, and they, and they run. Uh, they take bets on on who's going to win. For instance, the big prize, so and and then there's the kind of satire prize that, that that people get involved in as well. So it's good kind of participation by everybody. It's good fun, and I around. think um, yeah, Strokestown yeah. as well has got about nineteen pubs as far as I can remember. Not and well, back in the old days, not <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. A I don't few think, pubs, but, anyway. It's good yeah. fun, and of course, over the years, I mean, we've met many many poets down there. We've met like I remember meeting Michael Schmidt and. I think Neil Astley might have been there, and let me yeah. think, Seamus well, Heaney himself. Of course, of course, of course, famously Seamus Heaney. I mean, because I, I can remember very well the time Seamus Heaney was there because we went to see him, and I remember we got lost in the car driving there, and then suddenly out of the darkness we saw this luminous sign hanging from a tree saying Seamus Heaney, and then an arrow pointing the the way. So there we were, kind of yeah, making but... our way in the dark, and and we found the place. But I remember the reading as well. It was very memorable reading. I think he, 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 there was such intense kind of local excitement. Yeah, it well. was fantastic. And all the committee turned up. And then afterwards, brilliantly, we all went to uh, the local, a local shop, which also has a pub out the back. And uh, it was Anthony really Burns, great. Anthony Burns back bar. Give, give Anthony a plug there. And it was brilliant. Seamus was there and we drank away and had fun. Well, the reason actually why we're talking about Strokestown is because luckily for Strokestown, just before everything closed down, they had brought out a poetry anthology. It's the fourth poetry anthology and it's connected with the festival. And I really like the way they bring this out uh, as a lead up to the, the festival. And this year's anthology has a host of really fine writer poets in it. Jane Clark, John F. Dean, let me see, Pat Bourne, Eva Burke, Eleni Quillanon, Simon O'Fuelon, and also emerging poets. And also included in it are the poets who were shortlisted for the International Poetry Prize. This year, both John F. Dean and myself were judges. And it was it was very nice to, to judge with John, actually. He was a great judge to work with. And we came up with, we thought, some really uh, great winners. And it has been announced, but the winner was Jane Wilkinson, who wrote a poem, If I Were to Land. And um, we, we just thought it was quite stirring and accomplished a striking poem, uh, as much about loss as it is really about freedom. And we were delighted to award it the first place in the Strokestown International Poetry Prize. I don't know, Peter, would you like to hear it? I would, yeah. I was, gonna, oh, I was just going to say you okay. have it, yeah. Well, we actually found it quite a mysterious poem. And if Jane is listening, I just want to say how much we really enjoyed it as well. It's called If I Were to Land. If I were to land as a woodcock in your hands, rescued from the street and be offered to you, suppose by a passerby who might have considered that with your feathery face and egg blue eyes, you seemed like someone who would know what to do with a broken bird, with a bloody nose, two miniature tears, dripping scarlet as a pierced hardwood in a painted manuscript. Then if you assembled a cage of ribs, lined it with hair from your own brush and draped it with a sick bay hush, left me saucers of water and worms, left the night to heal me. And if I dissolved as coloured light in rain, would you weep, kneeling like a gilded saint, illuminated as you were when the rescued woodcock woke and walked along the garden path, looked back twice, then flew so well done to Jane Wilkinson. It's a pity, actually, I didn't actually get to meet Jane, but it is brilliant that, that this anthology is available. If anybody's looking for it, it's available from Strokestrand International Poetry Festival. Um, I'm sure you can look that up online. Today's Toaster Challenge guest is poet, novelist and artist Alice Lyons. She was born in Patterson, New Jersey and grew up in its suburbs. 
She's earned degrees in European history, sociolinguistics, the fine arts. She's got a PhD from the Seamus Heaney Centre for Poetry in Queens. She's been on the faculty uh, at Maine College in Portland. And in 1998, she moved to a rural village in County Roscommon in Ireland. So she often collaborates with artists and filmmakers, kind of interdisciplinary projects, public art. She co-directed, for instance, the poetry films with animator and artist Orla McHardy, including the Polish language in 2009, which has received loads of awards. She did a long or a year-long project in Carrick on Shannon, which has also been documented in the book Staircase Poems. And Developer is a poetry film project made in response to the impact of, guess what, unprecedented economic boom and bust in rural Ireland. Um, it's based on the poem which I actually read recently of the same title which appeared in Poetry Magazine. I might come back to that whole kind of boom and bust thing later, Alice. But anyway, she her most recent collection of poetry is The Bread Basket of Europe, which came out in 2016. She's received the Patrick Kavanagh Award for Poetry, a Radcliffe Fellowship and the Ireland Chair of Poetry Bursary, so as well as lots of other awards. But her novel, Una, was published by Lilliput this year, just at the start of um, this terrible lockdown. I'm sure can't have helped the book. It is, though, I have to say, it is in every way a, a remarkable book, and it has been widely acknowledged as such. Let me just read some of the, the things that have been said about it. Una is rich in physical and psychical texture. Lion's eye is acute and compassionate, her voice alive to the vivid possibilities of language, says Owen McNamee. Una is a Bildungsroman, unlike any other, in which each lacuna, each silence and each erasure reveals the depth of its subject. That's an acute comment, I think, from Diren Negriofa. Alan, Alice Lyons has delivered something extraordinary, Louise Kennedy said, and, and, it, and it goes on. So it, Una, of the title, is she's a child of first-generation migrants to America, to Patterson, or Patterson, New Jersey, for reasons we'll, we'll come back to, because there's no O's in the novel. And the novel moves back and forth between the US and what she calls the Ireland urge. There's lots of silence, secrecy, buried loss as her mother dies of cancer. There's sex, drugs, literature and art as Una's life develops. But maybe the most striking thing about the book is Una's fractured, broken, but rich and deeply involving voice. I mean, I hate I hate reaching for Joyce, um, JJ, as, as Una calls him, but there is a kind of delighted invention in the language, even if, or maybe precisely because constraint and silence are among the preoccupations of this intense novel. Maybe, Alice, if I could start with the a question I'm sure you're fed up of at this stage, but the formal question, you decided to write this novel without the letter O, a very kind of Ulipo decision. I'm thinking of Perek and the novel with no E in it. How did your decision, how did that decision come about and how did it shape the novel? Thank you so much, Peter. How did I come to come uh, to, to write it with no O? I, it, it was really, the, the novel really started by scratching around a whole lot. And I think, I think writing and drawing are very similar. And the way that I draw is through a lot of starting and then erasing. And it seems like the novel, this book started that way too. In fact, I started writing kind of a treatise on sociolinguistics based on kind of observations between the way people speak in New Jersey and the way they speak in rural Ireland. But after I started writing, it was just so boring. The, <laughs> the, the, the prose was just so boring and so sort of faux academic, and I didn't believe myself. And then I started, well, maybe I'll do sort of memoir. And that was even more boring when it was just sort of all about me, me, me. And yeah. 
and then just flipping flipping to to actually locating the the whole thing outside of myself into this character una and really una came about because i just love the word i love the way it looks on the page with the two o's the n and the sure. a love the name the character started to develop and then her voice just trying to search for her voice again the the language just felt dead you know, and okay. kind of searching around for a way to make the language. Like Kieran Carson always talks about how he got into writing prose when he could start to feel the rhythm of the sentences, like yeah. like playing music. You know, so I don't. I just ca- thought like, well, I'm writing about a person who is really out of touch with herself. So what if I take half of her away, which would be taking half of her name, the two O's out of her name. So then I just started. You know, you're you're both poets. Peter and, yeah, yeah. and so you know that thing about playing with language and then once I started to do that and kind of torque having to reach for words that weren't prepositions you know on off for of to yeah, sure all that stuff then the language started to have some kind of resonance that I could believe in and then I wasn't feeling bored I wasn't feeling like I didn't believe it and and so that and then the Ulipo yeah. thing was yeah yeah it didn't. It wasn't occurring to me that I was doing an Ulipo thing. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I find because I find it. Re- it's really engaging. It's really, you don't really. The, the funny thing is, maybe you don't really notice the constraint because you're so involved. Particularly in like like in those. The, 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 it's full of these kind of very short, sort of sections, and it's full of it's full of play with language. So you're kind of building your sense of who Una is from the way she perceives the world and her way of sort of linguistically reproducing the world, which is very kind of unique to her. And I'm also intrigued by the differences between Patterson, between the urban farms of her childhood and then rural Ireland, because that's a, a lot of what is going on too, isn't it? That contrast. Yes. Yeah. And and also, you know, you mentioned the Celtic tiger there. It was this yeah. sense of, of there being this, this corpus of rural Ireland and John McGahern, you know, figures a lot in the novel as kind yeah. of the articulator of that that time of history that that when I moved to Ireland was certainly still very much alive in rural Ireland. But then there was this sense of market-driven economics and mm. its expression in property development that had been, you know, very much had destroyed a lot of the rural culture of the New Jersey that I knew. And it was in a sense following me to rural Ireland. Mm. By just seeing how people suddenly were very interested in the in the cost of land and how much they could get by selling mm. land and all all that came along with it, especially the way that that economic interest broke down some of the the wonderful mm. ties that people had and I saw them very much in the time people take to talk to each other. I saw that being diminished by the mm. market and and I wanted to write about that. Because, you know, in New Jersey, I think, and and it's still something that that I struggle with, I think people have forgotten how to speak to each other. That's interesting. There was a moment, actually, when Una is is in her cottage in rural Leitrim, and she's reading McGahern. She's kind of grappling a bit with the barracks. And she's finding it hard. She's finding it a bit of a struggle. Yeah. Isn't that right? She's kind of she's finding it. Maybe maybe that Ireland is, is, I mean, is, is, is it the difference between... The two ways of thinking, or is it a male-female sort of thing? She's kind of finding it hard to deconstruct McGahern in her cottage in Leitrim. Mm. Yeah, I mean, people would talk about McGahern as, 
you know, the real articulator of of how people, you know, would talk and talk, but really not say very much, you know, that his, his fiction yeah. was so much about those silences. And yet Una, and, you know, to a, a greater or lesser extent myself, can't, you know, it's a language she doesn't understand. It's, it's a silence she doesn't understand. She understands another kind of silence, but this mm. kind of rural Irish silence she doesn't yet understand. And mm. so she's reading McGahern really for superficial reasons like recognizing the post yeah. office that's in the village yeah uh, yeah, yeah you know uh, yeah, yeah. trying to trying to match what's real and what's fiction which is actually a lot of what's happening in in the way that the book that i wrote the book um as I, well i mean because it's an important part of her that she's she's learning how to be an artist as well mm-hmm. um as as this novel develops she's some of the some of the striking bits I and mean, she's learning she takes a class with the poet, the real poet, William Meredith, and he sends he takes he he takes some of her verses and sends them up, puts a title on them and sends them off, and she wins a prize, and and, and all of that. And then he he lapses into this terrible stroke kind of induced silence himself. Just to sort of again, it's part of this whole thing of language and silence and absence, and which which is very important to it, isn't it? Yeah, very very much. Yeah, and I think in the process of Una becoming an artist or trying to document that. It's a way of, of trying to write about coming back into one's senses and using yeah. art, materials of art, and the materials of language as a way to kind of reincorporate oneself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so it's a great. I, so sorry, no, I mean, it's very interesting what, you know, what, what goes on and how she kind of discovers, kind of gradually sort of discovers herself and what you describe as the kind of fumbling that an artist has to do the, or the license to stumble, I think you, you, you put it. And she kind of stumbles in, into herself in, in, in a way. Unfortunately, time is a bit against us. I'd love to spend another half an hour talking about this. I, I do really strongly recommend anybody who hasn't yet to go out and find it. It's it's one of the most interesting novels to, to have come along in a long time, I think. And But I'm going to turn now to a toaster challenge. And this is where we ask our guest to talk about a novel that has imp- or a piece of writing that has impressed them and as the toast is is cooking in the toaster so this is where i get to put down the toast and you'll hear me counting you in and then off you go so here we go the toaster challenge the bread is down one two three okay here i go so the book i've chosen is called white out w-i-t-e-o-u-t by linda norton and it has a subtitle love and work so Norton is um, not widely known in Ireland, which is why I've chosen the book, because she deserves and demands to be better known in Ireland. She's, she's well known in the States. She's published by, this book is published by Hanging Loose Press in Brooklyn, and it's available on Amazon. Uh, I just checked, and it's, it's 15 quid on Amazon. It can be shipped to Ireland easily. So Wide Out, Love and Work is a book of memoir and poetry but it's an extremely refined kind of memoir. So Norton is a writer's writer. She's an archivist, a former acquisitions editor at University of California Press. She used to work in libraries and bookshops, and she's a really deep and wide reader. She keeps journals and has kept them all her life. And this book, Wide Out, is about the experience of being um, a half Sicilian, half Irish immigrant child growing up in racist Boston and 
trying to come to terms with living in the America, the United States, that right now is so much gripped by this Black Lives Matter movement. Norton's whole life has been about being a person who she calls uh, dark white, someone who uh, people are always asking, where are you from? Because of the way she looks. Are you Iranian? Are you Italian? Uh, that, that She's kind of white, but not white. And the book is about whiteness and what whiteness is. And I think that it's such an important thing to, to read about right now because there's so much focus on kind of black experience and black history and the, the history of black liberation, which is so important. But I think even more important for those of us who, as, as James Baldwin says, and have brought humanity to the edge of oblivion because they think they are white. It's about our own placatedness, implications in being white and what that means. So I think Norton writes about being a single mother and trying to survive economically through love and work. And she does all of this. She also writes about adopting a young black teenager through the process of being a kind of advocate for him in the court system. So I'll just read you a tiny bit, and, and I hope the toast is, is on dark mode. So she, she says, let's see, I want to read, where is it? I hear this. Yesterday, I learned that I need to provide proof of Marcus's enrollment in an adult school since he's dropped out of high school. I take a sick day to get it. I go out to East Oakland and wait in a trailer, the office at the adult school, for a clerk to give me the paperwork. Take a seat. I'm the only white person there. People come and go and get their paperwork. The young clerks conspicuously ignore me for a while, comparing their gel nails. I know what I look like to them. A white lady who wants to save black kids and get a prize for it. The whole thing... History, this situation, me being here, it's all fucked up, I know. I'm being tested, and the only way to pass today's test is to shut up and wait and not make it all about me. And I think that's the thing I love about Norton's writing is it's not about her. It's about her uh, place in a society as crazy as the United States. And I think anybody who's interested in learning more about their own kind of position in, in the society that we find ourselves in, in Ireland and in the USA, in these issues with dealing with race, will find uh, joy in reading this book. She's just a wonderful writer. She's a writer's writer. It's like Elena Ferrante, Angela Davis, and Lucia Berlin. You know, it's, it's just That's... wonderful writing. That's quite a combination. And, uh, yeah, the toast, the, toast, the toast might be slightly charred, but that's great. I appreciate it. And I should say as well that details of both Alice's book and, and Lena Norton's book will be on our website at booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. But thanks very much for that, Alice. I could see how the writer of Una would be interested in that as well. It's an interesting press as well, Hanging Loose Press. I, ch I had never heard of it. I hadn't heard of either Linda Norton or, the, or Hanging Loose Press, but some of the best work is often done, I think, by these kind of small adventurous presses. Yes, definitely. They first published Maggie Nelson's first book and somebody else I was just reading about, Ocean Vuong, I think. You know, yeah, they're a great press. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and Sherman Alexi. Native American writer. And thank you again to Alice Lyons for taking on the Toaster Challenge. So now we're going to move on to Peter. And Peter, I want to hear what you've been reading this week. I believe you have a particular pleasure that you've been enjoying. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, well, I suppose just to give some background, I mean, when all this lockdown stuff began, I started posting a poem more or less every day on, on social media. And that was usually a poem by somebody that I admired that I felt maybe spoke to our peculiar moment. And even now that we've left our lockdown, I find the habit um, persists. And so anyway, one one of the poems that I was drawn to in that period was by the French poet, uh, Francis Ponge, and it's called The Pleasures of the Door. And I don't know, since we were in a kind of tactile emergency, a poem that focused brilliantly on touch seemed particularly appropriate. I suppose as well, we were all stuck indoors and we couldn't really open our doors and get out. So it seems to me this is quite an appropriate poem too, Peter. Yeah, well, do you want to hear it? I can read a bit of it. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear it. Um, Off you go. Well, OK, I've got it in, in a translation. This one is actually by Raymond Fetterman and it appears in the Random House Book of 20th Century Poetry edited by Paul Auster. There's other translations and other books, which I'll maybe mention later. But here is this poem anyway in, in that translation. And it's just called The Pleasures of the Door. Kings do not touch doors. They do not know that happiness. To push before them with kindness or rudeness, one of these great familiar panels. To turn around towards it, to put it back in place. To hold it in one's arms. The happiness of grabbing by the porcelain knob of its belly one of these huge single obstacles, this quick grappling by which, for a moment, progress is hindered as the eye opens and the entire body fits into its new environment. With a friendly hand, he holds it a while longer before pushing it back decidedly, thus shutting himself in, of which he, by the click of the powerful and well-oiled spring, is pleasantly assured. That's that's pretty amazing poem. Has this been um, a favourite poem of yours for a long time, Peter? Maybe just tell us a little bit about Francie Ponge as well. Well, I, yeah, it has been a favourite poem of mine because I just love the opening. I just love this thing of, you know, kings do not touch doors because there's something you hardly ever think about, you know, and, and of course, you know, kind of royalty parading around their palaces and and, and flunkies um, rushing to open. But But I wouldn't mind that myself. But but it's just, I find that image just kind of intriguing that you can that you could walk through your life without doing something as as simple as banal as ordinary and maybe also as pleasurable as opening a door in in front of you. Yeah, it's true. I love that line where he says the happiness of grabbing by the personal knob of its belly. Beautiful descriptions in this poem, Peter. Yeah, well, see, that was the thing about him that that I mean, you said who who was Hange, and he was you know he's a French poet and. He was often called the poet of things because he focuses on simple objects. I mean, it could be a plant or a shell or a cigarette or a pebble or a, a piece of soap because he, he felt that all objects were kind of yearning to express themselves and, you know, that they were there mutely awaiting the coming of the world so they could re- reveal the, the hidden depths of their being. So it's really imaginative, yeah. idea, isn't it? I think it is. I mean, if you if you look even like some of his t- like the titles of his poems give you give it a sense of who he was as well. Like rain, ripe blackberries, the crate, the candle, the cigarette. Oh, he had a poem called the orange, didn't he as well? And the oyster, the oyster. Yeah, exactly. But that's the great thing is about these, all of these, is there's a massive kind of like a forensic attention to to detail. And can I just ask you as well, this poem, it's written in prose. Yeah. It's written in a prose-like structure. Is this the kind of structure that Francie Ponge liked best of all to write in? Well, I don't know. It's, it's, it's something, it's funny because it's a French, maybe it's a French thing that an, an awful lot of poetry in French is written in prose. 
And it, I don't think it works as well in, in English. I don't know why exactly. I know that, I mean, there's recently been an anthology of prose poems in English that actually, that's actually full of interest, but I'm not sure. There, anyway, yeah, but in, in his case, there is a prose and that kind of, it allows him to do things that maybe would be hard. I mean, one of his most famous poems is, for instance, it's called Rain. And if I just give you the opening couple of sentences yeah, from I'd it, because it. It, it, it really does give an idea of, of his style. And it starts, the rain I watch fall in the courtyard comes down at quite varying tempos. In the centre, it's a fine discontinuous curtain or net, an implacable but relatively slow downfall of fairly light drops, a lethargic everlasting precipitation, a concentrated fragment of the atmosphere. Near the left and right walls, heavier individual drops fall more noisily. And so it goes on. I mean, it's like, it's like no one ever listened to rain before. That's, that's very nice. It, I actually felt listening to that, that I was getting drenched or soaked in rain. The language took on the feel of rain, which is a, a marvellous thing to achieve, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I remember actually, didn't he write um, a poem about soap? I think it was in the, the late 60s where each piece... Each poem describes what it's like to be a piece of soap. Is that correct? He, well, yeah, he wrote, I mean, it's kind of typical of him. Why? I mean, he wrote a poem or wrote a book which came out in the 60s, Le Savant, which, is, which translates as soap, and where each prose poem considers a, a different aspect of the life of a bar of soap, uh, you know, detailing each one from the soap's perspective. Is there kind of a comic element to that, Peter? Yeah, sure. Uh, comic. I, why not? But he said lots of interesting, interesting things about poetry as well. One of the things I like is he said you have to first of all side with your own spirit and your own taste and then take the time and have the courage to express all your thoughts on the subject at hand, not just keeping the expressions that seem brilliant or distinctive. You have to say everything simply, not striving for charm, but conviction. That was translated by um, C.K. Williams. Yeah, that idea, that conviction. I mean, I do think that that's Probably one of the most important qualities of a very fine poem, isn't it, Peter? Yeah. That you're not seeking to charm readers as much as be convinced and passionate by what you're writing. And, and I love that idea of, you know, siding with your your own spirit. I mean, one of the one of the one of his collections is, is uh, Le Parti Piece des Choses, like siding with things. But this, uh, you know, be, things uh, and, and your own spirit, this, this is this is very much where he's coming from this is how he finds himself as a poet in in the things that he's looking at. I always find it interesting to read a little bit about poets and their lives. And Francis Ponge, he lived for the last 30 years of his life alone in a country house, didn't he? Well, he suffered from frequent bouts of kind of, I suppose, nervous exhaustion, various kind of psychosomatic illnesses. But he continued to write right until his death in 1988. And it's funny because the work he was doing at the time, you know, didn't come out until until 1991, but it was called La Table or The Table. And it, it, it reflects on his kind of increasingly maybe obsessional quest for the, for the right word. And the very, the famous or the last sentence is, O table ma console, ma console triste, au table, ma, you know, that, con- that consoles me. And it's like totally appropriate, it seems to me, that his final subject was his writing table. Because that by that stage, it had become his entire world. Well, Peter, I just want to say thank you very much for bringing in that poem. Can you remind us again of the name? So the name of the poem is The Pleasures of the Door. The other thing I should say is that, you know, I mentioned that, you know, there's various anthologies of poetry that, that you can find me in. I mentioned one, 
Paul Auster, now quite old anthology of, of French poetry. But also there is a book that I'd recommend if anybody's interested in him, uh, and it's Francis Ponge's Selected Poems. And it's got translations by the likes of C.K. Williams, John Montague, Margaret Guiton. It came out from Wake Forest University Press. That's great to be told that, Peter. And I have to say, I, I won't look at a door handle again without thinking of Francie Ponge. So, Peter Surrey, thanks for bringing in what you've been reading this week, Francie Ponge, and all details will be on our website. I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Surrey here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this uh, podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so. We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.